0: Girls5eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories.
1: I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2.
0: Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 342nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a Canadian-born American daughter of Korean immigrants who has become one of the most respected actresses of her generation, Sandra Oh. Oh first made her name playing supporting roles on TV shows like HBO's comedy series Arliss, on which she appeared from 1996 through 2002 and in films such as Gary Marshall's The Princess Diaries in 2001, Audrey Wells' Under the Tuscan Sun in 2003, and her then-husband Alexander Payne's Sideways in 2004, the last of which was nominated for the Best Picture Oscar and was awarded the Best Ensemble SAG Award. She became a star, though, playing Christina Yang on Shonda Rhimes' hit ABC medical drama Grey's Anatomy from 2005 through 2014, accruing five Emmy nominations for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama Series, and winning Golden Globe and SAG Awards for her performance as well. Rhymes has said of O, quote, One of the greatest gifts of my creative life has been the opportunity to write words to be spoken by Sandra O. Oh. The reason is simple. Sandra O oh is a virtuoso. She treats dialogue like notes of music. Every word must be played, every syllable correctly toned. She's always been an extraordinary actor. Quote. It was not, however, until twenty eighteen that O was given the opportunity to play a leading part in a major project, when she was cast as the title character on the BBC America spy thriller Killing Eve, which Fleabag's Phoebe Waller Bridge developed for TV and wrote the first season of and which wrapped its third season in May. And man did O make the most of it. For her performance as MI6 agent Eve Palastri, who is obsessively pursuing a psychopathic assassin named Villanelle, the actress has already won Best Actress in a Drama Series Critics' Choice, Golden Globe, and SAG Awards, and she has received two Emmy nominations in the same category as well, the first of which, in 2018, made her the first woman of Asian descent ever to be nominated for that top acting honor. In 2019, she was nominated at the Emmys not only for Best Actress in a Drama Series for Killing Eve, but also for Best Drama Series as a producer of Killing Eve, and for Best Guest Actress in a Comedy Series for her hosting of Saturday Night Live, and for Best Live Action Variety Special for co-hosting with Andy Samberg the 76th Golden Globe Awards, as in the same one at which she also won a Golden Globe for Killing Eve. At the Emmys, she lost the Best Actress in a Drama Series Award to her Killing Eve co-star, Jodie Comer. But right around the same time, she was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. So make no mistake about it, Sandra Oh was, and remains, on fire. Over the course of our conversation, the 48-year-old and I discussed, in this moment of racial reckoning, the impact that racism, affirmative action, and other race-related considerations have played in her life and career— Why she had grown despondently frustrated with the film opportunities that were coming her way just as Grey's Anatomy first crossed her radar, and how she very nearly wound up playing a different character on that show. Why she was heartbroken by the lack of opportunities offered to her for a number of years after she left Grey's Anatomy, and how, when the Killing Eve pilot came her way, she literally could not believe that it was she who was wanted for the leading part. Plus, much more.
2: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather
0: slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Sandra, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to see you. And I guess just to begin with, where are you and how are you holding up during this insanity?
2: Thank you so much for asking. I am in L.A., I'm in my back studio and how are you, how's one holding up? You know, as, as the months go on, can you believe that? Saying that months, but as the (laughs) months go on, things have shifted. You know what I mean? It just the straight, (laughs) just the straight COVID first. And then this kind of uh, social and civic awakening and reckoning that it has really taken over my body and soul and now really settling into the kind of reality of what the new reality is. This isn't the whatever three week break, you know, that I think everyone was kind of like, okay, that's a pro, uh, you know, that it's gone yes. on months and months. And I've just been thinking so much more deeply about this time. I, I'm sure you have, not everyone has as well. And I just think, you know, unless unless you're one is really willing to really change, really, really, really change and adapt- maybe that's a better word, uh, adapt, people are not going to be able to surf this wave. It's very, very big.
0: Absolutely. Well, just to go back to the very beginning for a moment, as we do on each episode, for people who may not know, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living?
2: Oh, sure. I was born and raised uh, right near Ottawa, uh, Canada, and that is the capital of Canada. And my parents, who are still living, who have been retired for quite a long time. Um, my mother is a scientist, was a scientist, and my, bro- my brother, my father, uh, my brother actually is also a scientist. Um, and <laughs> my father was a, he worked for the government for a very long time. Yeah.
0: Nice. So I have read that even before acting dance was sort of your thing and then acting became, it kind of took over. But what was the sort of, you've credited your sister, I guess you have an older sister, you've credited her for kind of nudging you into it all.
2: Yes, that's correct. You know, I've thought about this a a lot, you know, how how you just fall into these things and certain moments that you realize when you look back, even if you remember it, like those are really key moments. And that's probably when I was about 10 and I auditioned for my very first play, an operetta called the Canada goose, Mm -hmm. but also I was very much into dancing. I really, really wanted to be a dancer. And I just knew when in, in that time of, of 10 to 12, that's actually when you start going into professional schools. And I also was having the awareness that I'm really, really glad that I had, I had some sort of awareness at 10 that I was not good enough. Like I was just, I just didn't have the stuff for it. But then I remember, actually, I moved here to Los Angeles. And are you f- familiar with Pina Bausch? Pina Bausch. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So I saw one of her shows at the Amundsen, I think, in, in the in the mid-90s or something. Yeah. And I realized if I had been exposed to Pina Bausch at that time of my life, I would have never become an actor. I would have just tried to be in her company and just... Do dance. I, I just didn't. I wasn't exposed to enough wide ranges of what dance could be. And in my heart, I feel like I'm still always <laughs> a wannabe dancer. But uh, but about ten, when I when my sister convinced me to audition for my very very school play, that's when everything changed.
0: So how, in just a matter of I think five years, did you wind up being a paid? professional. I think your first paying gig was like 15, right?
2: Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because, uh, y- you know, s- some people are really lucky that, you know, what you, there is a certain drive and there's a certain knowing that you have even as a very, very young person. So all I did was act and dance. And so when I went into, uh, high school, really improv, Uh, and uh, like the Improv Olympics and stuff like that was really, really, really big in starting up in Canada. And we had some really, really great teachers. So I joined a student company in Ottawa. And I I mean, I gotta tell you, I can't believe it. I had the training that I had, not knowing that I was wanting training, but uh, it was just amazing. I, I was with that company for about four years all through high school. And through that, Ottawa is a government town and, um, it's a bilingual town. And it's also where a lot of, um, oh, what are they called? Um, industrial videos were shot. So one of my uh, a castmates, you know, she had an agent, a local agent who was specifically looking for a young Asian actress. You know, and and in Canada, it's very very difficult. They're, they're different because uh, uh, multiculturalism is very much mandated. So I yeah, really yeah. really benefited from that during my teen years because there needed to be representation. And at that time, my French was much better. And so they got like a two for one. You know what I mean? Which is like, hey, she's Asian <laughs> and she speaks French, so she could do the French version too. So, I mean, there there are some deep cuts that are that have been lost. Somewhere in the, you know, <laughs> somewhere in someone's vault. Yeah, yeah, in the archives.
0: Well, I did read uh, some interviews early on where you talked about the fact that it's an interesting thing, the the whole idea of affirmative action. And one that you've said you felt, you know, you you sometimes while, while experiencing that in Canada, you felt that on the one hand, you kind of know sometimes that you are the quota person or you're getting the smallest part just because. But on the other hand. If that's the way the world works, you can you can also make the most of that and you and you really did, right? You got experience and got yourself to a point where you ended up from what I understand turning down a journalism scholarship to go to the National Theatre School of Canada, which I assume was only really possible because of the fact that you'd racked up some some experience by that point already. <laughs> Good research.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, I would have to say that's all correct. You know, it was a different time because it was the 80s. Um, and I did benefit from that uh, greatly. Having also said that, you know, with this o- awakening that is hopefully happening for all of us, I also do think back on that time of of how much adaptation I had to have even within affirmative action. The tricky part of, of affirmative action. Let's say in my case, I'll just speak only personally, is that it's exactly what you said. You know in some ways that you have the smallest part, that you're here to, to fulfill a quota, et cetera, et cetera, which always puts you in a one down or two down or three down position. Having said that, I was very, very um, – I just wanted it. Do you know what I mean? I just wanted it and I would make the most out of one line. And mm-hmm. no matter what, I would be, I would be gathering experience along the way. And the residue of what it does for one to start believing that their only place is to be one down is something that honestly, Scott, I still reckon with. You know, again, during this time, it's just it's just resurfaced so much for me. But but I did really, really, really benefit from that time, and also speaking French.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so just before we go any further, I guess I have to ask: How did your parents feel about you turning down a journalism scholarship to go and pursue acting? You've said that, uh, and I don't know if you're if you're being hyperbolic, but you said I'm the only person in my family who doesn't have a master's in something. So, oh, yeah, that, I wonder true. how that went over. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> my my family and like. My in-laws are just like really, not my in-laws, but my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, They're everyone is exceptionally educated. And it just wasn't the case for me. You know, I kind of think like my parents, it's like they already had a lawyer. My brother was about <laughs> to get a doctorate, you know what I mean? So it was just like, okay, the middle one can go do I don't know what. You know, coming from an immigrant household, you know, and an East Asian immigrant household, there is just, you know, I I had a very, very typical upbringing. So the kind of image that you have of an Asian immigrant household, it was my household. So within that, there was not a lot of understanding or openness for something that was not as um, staid or as predictable or as secure quote unquote, let me tell you, <laughs> academia is right. really insecure, like really insecure. Yeah. Um, so like when you're choosing what your doctorate is going to be at like 22, it's like, you have no idea. Anyway, <laughs> I kind of tried to make that like argument with my parents when my brother was getting his doctorate. It was just like, what does he know?
0: <laughs> well, and I will say, I think you you certainly got the last laugh. I was at the Golden Globes, what was it, two Januarys ago when you not only hosted, but won with your parents in the room. That was pretty. So they, you know, I think they hopefully have come around. Oh, no. Oh,
2: yes. (laughs) They came around. They came around pretty quickly. Yeah.
0: Yes. So you get out of school and it seems like pretty quickly you were the lead in two features. You know, things are going well, right out of the gate. Did you, maybe you can just share how those two opportunities came about, Double Happiness and Diary of Evelyn Lau. And then also, you know, did you just kind of assume that this is the way it's going to be when, yeah. <laughs> I, I,
2: no, no, absolutely. It's, I think about now, you know, this is one of the amazing things about aging is that you actually get perspective. And during that time when I was coming out of theater school, basically from like 93 to like 94, even just that one year, uh, just the timing was right. There were, there were three, there were, uh, there were two, two feature films, no, one feature film, a television film, and another really beautiful short film that all asked for a young Asian woman who was about 18. Do you know what I mean? I was 20 at the time. And and I got them all, and I cannot tell you how that how that set myself up uh, psychologically or just creatively of of having stepped into a collaborative space and also an ownership place where, in a way, of like, why not? You know, here I am at the National Theatre School. We're all doing plays. Someone's going to go out and do whatever. Why? Why can't it be me? You know. So I would say. I really, really also benefited from that because I knew what was possible because I got it from the very beginning. Then I moved to Hollywood, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then, then, then it's it's the normal grind of it, and it's the no- and I yeah. know that for me, my career has been just totally blessed and touched as well with a lot of hard work. But uh, I, I mean, I've had a lot of, um, I've had a lot of, luck. you know, luck is not the right thing. I, I think that no. I've just been really, really, really fortunate. I Early on, I think my my timing was just, I just had great, I just happened to be born at the right time because those three, three, three things, let's say, weren't happening in the States.
0: No, no. And, but I, I also think there's got to be something kind of where you have an innate I don't know if confidence is the right word, but I want to just read back a quote that I came across prepping for this. Sterla Gunnarsson, I believe is the way to pronounce the director of The Diary of Evelyn Lau, says there were a thousand young women who went out for the part that you ended up getting in that movie. And she remembers you coming into the audition, walking into the room, asking for a moment to gather yourself and then laying down on the floor for five minutes. And she says, quote, Most people would have kicked her out of the room. I thought it was remarkable that at 19, she had the confidence and audacity to do that, close quote. So where do you think you were just in your own... This is before you had the part, before you had much reason to feel super confident about anything.
2: Yes. I would say, you know, I I was just in the midst of my first year of theater school, at the National Theater School. And so I was like navel-gazing, you know... Like five days a week, but also (laughs) I felt that, and I think the theater has this much more than television and film. I had no reason to doubt my talent. And what I was gaining from theater school was learning how to get and ask for what I needed. I did not know that world of auditioning, and I did not know that you are not supposed to ask for what you need, quote unquote right? Because that's what you're taught. Like you can't ask for five minutes or you can't do something as unpredictable as lie on the floor because you need to emotionally prepare. I didn't know. I mean, I think about that now and I just like, (laughs) you know, I mean, who does that? Hey, you have this really big audition and it's like, okay, now it's the scene where, you know, she's going to talk to her psychiatrist and she has a giant monologue and she's going to break down. Can you just hold one second? okay, I'm just going to lie. And I was very clear. I remember this very clearly. I'm just going to lie down here. And can you hold my hand? And when I'm ready, I will squeeze your hand and then I'll be ready to do the scene. I, I, <laughs> you, you, you know, you you hope that um, that every artist has enough faith in themselves. And, and I will say, I'm still working to get back to her.
0: Right. Because you can get, I guess, over the years, you can get beaten down a little bit in, in any anything. But so another thing that's kind of interesting about those early earliest parts that maybe differed from a lot of what came after. So those two features, the TV film and the feature and the narrative and the theatrical film, both called specifically for Asian actresses at, in terms of the nature of the part. Right. But most of the stuff that you've done since then, I think that was not the case. Right.
2: Correct. I would say. Yes. Gosh, I, you know, I hadn't even thought about it that way. Because here I am, I'd say now, in that this point in my career, specifically wanting to return to only playing specifically Asian characters. You know, and and you can trace in some ways where we have been and where Hollywood has been and where I think myself and fellow Asian American actors uh, have been and where I hope that we are now moving towards and going back to n- not a type of assimilation where it is embracing a certain type of mainstream, which is the white mainstream. It's to actually embrace our own accents our own histories our own culture and that and that's all it's just a it's a big shift because it's it's really a, a shift in writing as well
0: a corollary of that though i guess is that now you know as we've as you say as things have certainly over the years they've evolved and changed and you know even the way we've all thought about these things i think in the in in many cases early on and i guess throughout your career you were asked to sometimes play uh a character who's chinese or japanese or not korean and you've talked about that you know when people say to you why is that okay to do i i i like that what you basically said was well people don't uh hold white actors to you know you can only play a american or a finn or a brit or whatever but is that something that also is still the case or do you find that that even your thoughts about that are changing as a result of whatever's happening yeah in the world? good
2: good question Well, I'm going to start by still holding to that first point of the demand of specificity does not hold for white actors. So that means the actual range of what a white actor can play will be five times as large, let's just say. So I bristle at those standards being then put on actors who have clearly have less opportunity because it's just like, don't, don't even talk to me about it. But your second question, I actually absolutely have been thinking about and have talked to some fellow actors about. It's like, hey, what are you thinking about X, Y and Z? And we're just in a place, I think, right now, because I feel there is a, a, a hopefully continuing on. You know, with, you know, the parasite wave, let's just say that there's still and the crazy rich Asians wave. Let's let's hopefully that there's still a deep interest and a real movement to have Asian American stories really be a larger thread in the fabric of of American culture and North and just Western culture, let's just say. But I know I have with like uh, with a certain filmmaker who's a close friend of mine, you know, she wrote it specifically, you know, about her mother and her mother is. Taiwanese. And I remember having conversations with her because even the way that she wrote it, I'm like, I hear it and I can see it. And I, um, and do, are you sure you don't want to have, uh, you know, a Taiwanese or a Chinese actress for this because it might fall easier to her than it does to me. And so this is the entire um, conversation, which is then she goes, yes, I understand, but I want you to play it. So if I want you to play it, you then help me out with what falls more naturally in your mouth if you are playing, you know, a Korean immigrant woman. Do you know what I mean? So how does it feel more naturally in your mouth? And I will adapt to the actor and then shift it. And I just, it's like, it's like, it's it's the biggest gift. It is the absolute biggest gift. And I think we should always be up for that conversation and up for the flexibility of it.
0: Yeah, because I guess, I mean, the alternative is if you just have to wait around for every English language part that's specifically for a Korean, you might be waiting for a very long time, right? I mean, it's just. I mean, if
2: everyone was waiting that,
0: then it'd be fair. But don't
2: (laughs) don't put certain rules or certain demands. It's like I'd be I'd be perfectly willing. And and it's also like the only people regarding that that I would need to um, answer to are people from my own community.
0: Right, right, right.
2: Do do, do you know what I mean? You know what I mean. It's like if you don't feel like my work is clear, or that the character work that I'm doing is believable or honest, then I will take that. Like I will take that, and then I'll 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 work on whatever. But it. But if I can hold my belief in my argument, and then be able to express it and share it with my community, that's all that matters.
0: Right. So I want to ask you about somebody who uh, I believe hails from your community and also has been a part of your life since, so I guess this would make it 25 years. Who is Diana's son? Oh Somebody my God. I know that you worked with a lot early on and on the stage and in some very uh, successful things. Can you talk about that? Correct. Relationship?
2: When I first got here in 95 this is before I even moved. Uh, To L.A. Yes, yes. uh, Che Yu, who is a wonderful uh, playwright and a a director, and uh, he used to uh, be an artistic director. um, Oh, my God, I'm forgetting the name of the theater. This is terrible. In Chicago. That's all right. Sorry, Che. He ran uh, the Playwrights Workshop at uh, the Taper when there was a Playwrights Workshop, which there is not anymore. Anywho... Within that, for their New Works Festival, he he chose Diana Sun's play, Fishes. And then I met Che at some party. I don't know how I got there. At some party, and he put me in her play. So that was in the fall of 95. And then I went on to basically... You know, Diana and I are very, very close collaborators in almost all of her plays. And now she's a very successful showrunner and a television writer as well. So, you know, I've had actually I've been just really so lucky to have had um, numerous long term relationships with writers and writers, directors and almost all of them women of color.
0: So bouncing off of a project you did in 2006 with Diana on stage called Satellites, you had said in something back at that time that the character you played, you modeled after your aforementioned older sister. And you said that actually a lot of the characters that you've played have been sort of in some way modeled after her. Can you explain maybe who a few of those characters that people would know are and why that is? that's a good
2: one (laughs) I think I play my sister in almost everything you know I I do gosh hold on a second no one's ever asked me that question I need to try and think (laughs) about what I've what I have done that um, that I've oh definitely satellites I did a film with uh, Mina Shum called um, uh, Meditation Park definitely playing my sister but I, I always feel that somehow my influence, my sister's influence on me um, has shown up in, in in numerous parts. But those two I can definitely point to.
0: What is it about your sister that you think you most end up inhabiting?
2: There is something very normal in my sister. So in, in a way that she is the every woman,
1: mm-hmm. do you know
2: what I mean? So she is the every woman in terms of her relationship with her children. She's the every woman in the relationships with the stresses of her job or her partnership. There's something in like, she's every, uh, every woman in that she is sane, that you know what I mean? She's not an extreme (laughs) character. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, but she's a, she is that very relatable character. I think, I think that's my entry point in, in a way of really being able to know who that person is. Cause I don't necessarily think that I'm
0: that. Are you, you're more of a eccentric kind of person?
2: No, I don't think that I'm eccentric, but I know I don't have a normal life. Do you know, I don't, I know I don't have a very, you know, when you're thinking of a normal, typical life, I know I don't have it. So, but my sister does.
0: So let's, uh, I think, you know, we've, we've gotten up to about 95 and then I think it was 95, 96 that you, as you say, you came to LA and had your first maybe interactions with screen agency, screen representatives, uh, potential people to represent you in this business. I have heard a story. I hope it's not true, but I would like to ask you, what was your first interaction with an agent? Was there somebody who Oh no, I can
2: can tell you, I can tell you that one. That was really bad. And I'll say who it was. Cause she's, (laughs) yeah, she's passed now. It was Susan Smith. She's a very, very powerful agent. I I somehow don't even know how I got that.
0: Which agency is that?
2: Oh, it was hers. She's just, yeah. Anyway, Uh, she's a powerful agent. um, And uh, somehow I got a meeting with her. And I'd say when I think about it now, that was uh, one of the, it was extremely destructive meeting for me. I was so young and so, you know, hopeful and open and The way that she approached me in the way of saying, I will tell you the truth, and the truth is you don't belong here, to encapsulate the messaging was exceptionally painful. And I now know how insidious that type of messaging is, because in some ways it was couched in a very straightforward, honest kind of conversation, And then, you know, it was basically, you know, you should go back to your country, Canada, and go get famous. And that's kind of like the only way that you can kind of cross over here because I already have an Asian person in my roster and she hasn't auditioned in like whatever, six months. And there's just a lot that sets up – there's a lot of belief systems that she's saying that's setting up and it's almost like – you know, as a young person, as an actor, a young person of color, you know what I mean? In some ways, you know that you're kind of holding things at bay. Like you're Mm -hmm. kind of holding those monsters at bay because you, it kind of, you can kind of manage it, but that's when it all just kind of came roaring in. It was very, very, very um, painful. I think it's taken me a long time to unravel from something like that. When someone with such a position of uh, uh, that I gave her so so much power, and she did at that point, kind of was trying to set up a truth for me. And, um, yeah. Also, you know, we all have these brutal stories as an actor, and and I think ultimately, you know, it informs you as an artist and it informs you as an actor because— only this it's not only the strong will survive i don't like those terms but it's just like you got to weather those things
0: right cuz there's a lot of bs you'll you'll encounter so meanwhile though i and i don't i'm sounds like she had nothing to do with this but you within by 96 you're on tv for the fir- your first screen I think in, in our list on our list on HBO, we should just remind folks, you're playing, uh, Rita Wu, this, this spunky kind of personal assistant to a sports agent. Um, and you did it for six years, seven, seven seasons. seasons, it looks like. Yes, we did yeah. it for seven and seasons. So was that a good way to kind of establish yourself in the business? Was that an enjoyable run or, or was it, uh, oh my God. how do you look back on that? Dude, yeah. when
2: you, I think about this, right. So that is early, early, early HBO. And we were like, like the weird stepchild that, you know what I mean? <laughs> we were during, um, God, Albrecht's reign. And, yeah. um, it was just like, it was just such early days of HBO. No one kind of knew what, you know, no one, it isn't, it wasn't what it is now. I cut my teeth and I learned so much. I credit Robert Wool so much because he, because he chose me. You know, there are, there are key people who I am so grateful to because they said yes to me. They said, I want her and I am, will always be forever grateful to him for that. But I was like 23, 24. I was working with all men. It was all sports. It was during a salty time, you know what I mean? Where it was, it was just saltier then. And yeah. I, I, it was so much fun. I'm sure we did so much wrong, but it was, <laughs> um, it was great. And it's, it's like, you know, I met all these sports people who I just had no concept of who they were. But, you know, I remain quite close to Jim Turner and Michael Boatman and uh, we had a we had a great time. We had a great time.
0: Yeah. Well, so uh meanwhile, I think so- some of these sort of overlapped with the end of that. And but I just going to mention a few other things where people, if they think back, maybe they didn't realize it was you at the time. But now if they go back, they'll see. A small part in the Princess Diaries in two thousand one, uh, one episode appearance as a porn star in Six Feet Under. Oh yes, uh, around the same time, and then uh, a part that was in a pretty big budget film. Really, I did a big budget Tuska- film. <laughs> 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 this one, yeah, I mean, I, I remember seeing this in theaters. This is Under the Tuscan Sun. You were the pregnant lesbian friend of Diane Lane's character, and. You said at the time, quote, "I know for me to be in any film over three million dollars there is someone pushing for me because I'm not an easy sell close quote. who was pushing for you in that one
2: audrey Wells
0: Audrey Wells okay yeah, Director, it's yeah. Audrey
2: Wells, and even that i you can hear you can hear even in that quote the belief that I'm difficult did that I'm a difficult were people
0: s- saying that no 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 but implying- the belief that yeah. I
2: have that I'm a difficult sell
0: right, right.
2: and in right. some ways, this is why. Audrey Wells was one of those people in my life who said, I want her. And so I did her first her first feature that she directed, which was Guinevere. But actually, she wrote or she I know she did a, a pass or wrote um, The Princess Diaries. And actually, I yes. just finished her last film, the last film that she wrote, um, which yes. is called Over the Moon. So I did four of her films. Um, but she was one person who said, no, I want you and I'll be forever grateful to have, you know, been able to say her words numerous times.
0: Well, so that was a, a, again, a big movie, but you have, you also said, quote, and I'm hope you don't mind me keep going back to old quotes, but it's kind of, um, quote, after it came out, I couldn't get a fucking audition. The only (laughs) other role I, (laughs) the only other role I got was another best friend. And they said to me, well, you've already played a best friend, so we're not going to cast you. And that was a close quote of what they said. But you then went on to say. That was a turning point for me to go back to TV. I'd hit the glass ceiling of playing The Best Friend. So I believe that it was at that point before you went and then did Sideways, but uh, Sideways came out before what I'm about to bring up. But I think Grey's Anatomy entered the picture at that point before you went and did Sideways. Yes,
2: there's a lot of overlap because ultimately when Grey's came out, it was it was just after Sideways had come out. It's interesting. Oh, God, oh, wow. It's like it's, it's thought provoking for me. I think because my point of view on these quotes have changed now, you know, and I, I feel a little bit sad to hear how, how, just how it was for me. Um, I I think that's true. I, I think that's true, and I will always be forever grateful. To television, the medium of television, and I praise the medium of television and how it has changed because its embrace includes me and uh, for film. You know, I've thought about this lately. It's just like, who cares? Meaning this. Why hold these things like, you know, like when you're when you with that quote of like, I'm trying to go into other films and it, it seems to be very, very boxed in and you can already fee- feel the ceiling because you've already done that type of role successfully in one film. I think about it now. Why do I want to hang out with you? Right.
0: right why why right. should
2: I give why should I give two breaths of my talent and time to you? You don't want it. Why am I? It's a bad boyfriend thing. It's just like, why am I texting you? <laughs> You're terrible. You're never going to text right. me back. Why am I texting you? So, <laughs> so, be, so I, I went back to television because also for me in the workhorse way, and I think mostly comes from theater, I like acting. I love acting and I want to act more than, you know, five weeks out of the year.
0: Which is really, from what you were saying at that time, what it it ended up being. If you're only doing a few movies and small parts, that would get, I could see getting frustrating. But let's, I mean, you didn't just go back to TV. You went back to what became like the biggest new show there was. So just to contextualize for, for listeners, you obviously ended up playing Christina Yang, this very highly ambitious intern who then becomes a cardiothoracic surgeon at Seattle Grace Hospital on Grey's Anatomy, which ran started in 2005 you left in 2014 but it's still still on the air i mean and uh it's but let me ask you about the origin of that because you've said and others have said the part of christina was originally scripted for a quote-unquote petite blonde and that i believe you were originally approached or somehow it came up that uh the part of miranda bailey the resident supervisor so how did it work out that you wound up playing christina
2: I don't know. I, you know, i got to dig up the original pilot, man, to see who was described as the petite blonde. Because I somehow think that it was Bailey because it was such a great thing to see Chandra Wilson <laughs> playing her. <Yeah. laughs> I originally went in for the role of Dr. Bailey, and I actually auditioned. I had my first audition of Dr. Bailey. And um, at that point, I wanted to shift my career in the way of, like, I don't want to play the person of authority I felt at that time because I played a, an assistant that you know I was uh, I, I was still in my late twenties early thirties and people thought that I was much older, and so in that type of kind of st- actually thoughtful strategic way I was like I don't think it's I don't think I want to play the person of authority I want to play the junior because at that point the only other part that was open was was for Christina. And also, just dramaturgically wise, I was like, "This is the better." This is the, sorry, I shouldn't say better, but this was the more interesting part for me, because um, she was the foil. She was the other side of the lock and key to uh, Meredith Grey, and I was like, "I want to play that part," you know. And she was also like really tough, and I, I and I, I I liked her acerbicness, and I liked her spikiness.
0: Absolutely. Well, before we go any further with Grey's Anatomy, let's now go back just because for the consumer, they would have first seen you in Sideways, which I have to say is definitely in my all time top five. I love it so much. I can quote every line. And uh, you were, of course, Stephanie, who was sort of uh, the, well, the single mother, a little bit promiscuous, poor girl at a, what do you call it, a winery? I guess it would have been a winery. So, at that point in your life, I guess we, we can just to set the scene, you and Alexander Payne got married in January 2003. Six months later, apparently, is when you guys shot this film. How early on did you even know that this script was coming together? And did you always know that you were going to be or wanted to be a part of it? Just how, what, how did you end up being uh, Stephanie?
2: Oh, gosh, what are the dates? When Alexander was, you know, you know, because these scripts, they, they take years to develop, you know, and um, from the uh, Rex Pickett novel Sideways. Michael brought the script. I'm not trying to remember. But Alexander asked me to play Stephanie. I was probably the first person cast because he asked me mm-hmm. to play Stephanie. Uh, and then he and Jim uh, Taylor wrote the script. We shot that in, um, I want to say, late... Late summer, fall of 2003, I guess 2003. Yep. And I think everyone, when we were shooting that, knew, like, you, ne- you can never know what something is going to do, how something is going to hit. But you know when you're on a special project. And I still think of that time and I wonder how the other cast members and, and, you know, HODs and even if Alexander feels it's like, oh, that was such, for me, it was such a special time. It was, it it was also time, like, honestly, when there was a little bit more money, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, let's just think of it. It's like, we're in the, we're in the early aughts, early to mid aughts. There was just a little bit more money for a, 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 of a picture at this time. Budget. I mean, I don't know how many days of shooting we had, but it's like, you know, the past couple of movies I've done have been like mm, 19 days. Do you know what I mean? To shoot a feature film. And I just remember, you know, sideways going on for months. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So, with that, you you know, he was able to set a beautiful pace. And because we were mostly all on location in San Inez, you know, Los Olivos, um, a Builton kind of area just north of Los Angeles, the way that I think that the cast and, and the crew came together as a unit and really, really making the same thing all influenced, I think, the movie. When people, have asked, cause m- many people have asked me, was it a lot of fun? Cause it looked like a <laughs> lot of fun and it was, it was a great time.
0: I'm glad to hear that because, uh, it's just such a powerful movie. And, uh, and it's interesting that you, you had said around that time that you found people even on the production when they would come onto the production and they saw their, these two female parts yours and then Maya played by Virginia Madsen when they, I guess, had only seen it on the page or heard who these characters were, they sort of assumed that you were going to be the other one. Why would that have been? This earth That the, she was the earthy um, oh, kind of...
2: I don't know. I don't know. I guess that would be a question for Alexander. I don't know. I loved Stephanie, you know, and I was yeah. so happy to play her, you know, because, you know, she just had that great scene where she beats up Jack. Speeds up, Jack. It's just like I got that scene. You know, what I mean? maybe, yeah. I didn't, maybe I didn't get Miles, but like... I got that scene, so it was great.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, what was the direction for that scene? Just l- oh. let loose. No, no, no.
2: I remember. I remember the direction. Uh, Alexander is an excellent director. I remember the direction. He said, in a half kind of joking way, he said, he goes, oh, just access all that like old, like Korean female rage. <laughs> oh, it, you know, it made me laugh, but it was also true. It was also
1: true. Yeah.
0: It's great. It was and I just direction. say one one last question about that movie was um you know, another memorable scene. That was that was sort of the end of your relationship with Thomas Hayden Church's character, but the beginning was when you refill his glass very heavily and he says, "Oh, you bad girl." To which your character responds, I know I need to be spanked. And one critic wrote at the time, and I believe it was an Asian female critic, quote, Asian women in American movies and television simply don't talk that way. They can be sexy in the ins- in the inscrutable dragon lady fashion of Lucy Liu's character on Allie McBeal, but they rarely, if ever, appear as funny, frank and openly aggressive beings, close quote. What are your thoughts hearing that? Oh, I've right never read you? that.
2: I appreciate that whoever wrote that really got the character of Stephanie.
0: Yes, (laughs) exactly, She really did.
2: You know, so um, it's great. It's great when actually uh, people can, particularly writers, catch what you're doing and then be able to synthesize it in that kind of way.
0: Sure. And uh, I'll just mention that the movie, I think right after that, which was at Sundance, just a few months after that came out, another one worth worth checking out for people if they didn't have if they haven't seen it. Hard Candy was a very good indie with Ellen and Patrick. Um, yes, really really good. But let's now I guess chronologically we come back to Grays and I just want to ask you here's so the show goes on the air and early reviews on the one hand you have New York Times saying Quote Miss O steals every scene. Close quote. In their review, Slate, on the other hand, got it half right and half wrong. So let's. It's it's actually funny to read all these years later. So I'm I'm gonna I got to do it. Quote Grey's Anatomy, the the mid season medical drama that premiered last night on ABC in the golden in the golden spot right after Desperate Housewives, will need defibrillator paddles applied to its thorax stat if it hopes to survive the season. Hey, it wouldn't be a review of a doctor show without a tortured medical metaphor in the lead. But the nearly inevitable demise of this warmed-over combo of ER, Sex in the City, and the paper chase may yet lead to something good. Perhaps, like a selfless organ donor, the show will pass on the best parts of itself to another show that can really use them and the most functional organ on Grey's Anatomy, its delightfully bilious spleen, is Sandra O. Oh. If Grey's Anatomy is allowed to die with dignity, O oh could be the first smart ash Asian chick with a successful show of her own, close quote. So, well, they were they were wrong by about 16 seasons and counting as far as the show itself, but uh, they were they were right about just that this was a, a perfect match of part and performer for for yours. And I guess I just wonder, you know, this show obviously this person was proven very wrong and the show was a, a hit right out of the gate um, how did it affect your day-to-day life are you, you I would have to think you're suddenly a much more well-known person and that can be a a big change for somebody
2: oh yes it was traumatic
0: <laughs> it was, was tra- it?
2: it was traumatic it was traumatic it's uh you know again this is uh, oh my gosh how many Oh, 15? 15 years ago, fifteen. No, more than that. How many years ago was this? I can't do well, math. So it went on, Wait, sixteen went on years here ago. Two thousand oh, right. 15 years 15, ago. Fifteen. Sixteen years yeah. ago. Right. Um, yeah. So everything is different then. Social media was not what it is. Um, uh, you, you know, people didn't have phones the way that they do now. Um, uh, but, but the paparazzi was, uh, and and people who are looking to fill, you know, trash magazines were definitely. That's around. Yes. So I, I'd say, and also I, I don't know whether the the hunger and the need uh, for fame was the same as it is, let's say, now. And that's never been a, a, a focus for me. So what people don't understand when people really, really want to be famous Um, It is exceptionally destabilizing when you lose your anonymity and in ways that you cannot predict and because it's very, very specific to each person. You know, if it doesn't affect you, I kind of don't believe you uh, because it'll (laughs) go somewhere. You know what I mean? But for me, I found it very, very difficult and I had to do like uh, constant therapy just to be able to manage the energy overload of it. So... It was very, very stressful. you know it it comes with a lot of other things as well, but your question regarding what was the change like it was very I found it very, very challenging
0: as you say, it's not something you can know what you're signing up for ahead of time, but once it happens, is it something that you ever wish you could go back and rescind, or is it is it worth the price that 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 comes with getting to do things like that show?
2: Oh, that's a good question because I think that question inside that question is 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 how how have you lived your life? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it was, there are times where I thought I, I uh, the workload and the stress load was really, really high. And I didn't know, I felt like uh, it was, it was just very, very, very high. And specifically, And we should
0: say, you you guys with that show were doing like, what, 27 episodes a season or something? No, we crazy?
2: we usually did, we did we definitely t- 22. Sometimes it would go to 24 yeah. in the early days. Yeah. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where it's at now, but I don't regret anything. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I made it through, and so I'm ha- happy that uh, you know I made it through. It was t- tough, but I'm I don't regret yeah. any of it.
0: And the and the best part of that experience with that show and that character is it that it was such a complex, you know, uh, just roller coaster of a of a storyline that she endures. I mean, I don't think that many people get to play a character over 10 years and and kind of uh experience that. So I guess I'd be curious what that part of it's like.
2: I think it's one of the rarest opportunities for an actor to have. You know, I you know, I'm just thinking of Oh my gosh, what's that wonderful actor who played Tony Soprano who passed?
0: Oh yeah, Gandolfini, yeah.
2: Like I I I'm sure that he has spoken about it. He had spoken about it. Um, But something like that, you know what I mean? Like you have, it's taken up and it has been a burden. It has been difficult, right? I feel the gift to be able to play a character and a character's growth in real time is so rare. And that the character that you play is actually growing, which is very difficult on television, you know on on something like that you couldn't be doing you know it, it, it and it just happened to be that uh, Christina did grow, the character did grow, and it was believable because people grow mm-hmm. in 10 years. So the person right. who she was at the beginning of the pilot, which was much less sensitive to or aware of other people and only focused on her one ambition, you can see the relationships primarily with, with Meredith and then the relationship she's had with all the other people and how at the end when she leaves, she has this skill, but she has also opened up so much more as a Person. And it's not just like it happens in a scene. It's believable because it happened if people had been watching you know what I mean over 10 years. So you right. believe how a character has changed. And it's it's like I I'm eternally grateful for it because it's just so rare to do.
0: And it's also, I guess, pretty rare to have that developed a female friendship as 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 Christina has with Meredith. I know that there was a quote I came across from Krista Vernoff, who was at that time a writer on the show. Now, I guess, uh, subsequently the showrunner.
2: She was our showrunner twice. She was on the showrunner. She was show running it early and then she took a break and then she came back. Yes.
0: OK, so she said, quote, I remember Shonda saying to us, while the show will be sold as a love story between Meredith and Derek, the truth is the show is a love story between Meredith and Christina, close quote, and that that was basically the fundamental yeah. mandate throughout the time you were both there. Just a rarity to see that, I think, a, a female relationship so front and center in, in almost anything up, at, up to that point.
2: Correct. But I feel like, you know, it, again, it's like these are also the things that you can actually build with television that you might not be able to, or, or it's difficult to build with film, is that you can find what, what it is. Like it, right. the pilot is one thing, right? Season three is another and then when you're thinking about it, oh, this is actually the heartbeat of it, you know. I mean, I, I you know, I left six years ago, um, so. But I would, I would say, I think you know, would be comfortable to say that absolutely the Meredith and uh, oh my God, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not. Pat, what's Patrick's character's name? Derek. Derek. Jeez, um, yeah. <laughs> that 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 was definitely a, 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 an arc. the The heartbeat really was the friendship between those two characters. And it's and it's so, also like it's like blatantly it's like we're here to elevate and and really spend how many seasons of talking about friendship between women. It's great. It was great.
0: You are my person. That line is going to follow you forever. Yeah. right? That's uh, probably the first thing that one of the first things people would quote back. But um, so meanwhile, I guess during off seasons, you're busy doing a lot of other very memorable stuff, rabbit hole and on and on. But I know that the time comes when, as you say, about six years ago, you, you say, um, it's time to go. And I wonder what tells you that it's time to go. And then also in terms of what happened immediately after that, in ter- you know, other opportunities that come about or don't, was it how different were your expectations from the reality?
2: I can't really say that I had clear expectations, And I feel even at that time and now, I I think having expectations uh, is a danger for longevity and for sanity in this profession. (laughs) So I feel like when the time came, it was definitely a deeply internal creative kind of not switch, but a, a knowing that I had, you know, when Shonda you know, checked in with me and I was like, she goes, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I think I'm ready to go. You know, again, I always appreciate... Shonda and like Tony Phelan and Joan Rader, who were running the show at that time, we had a lot of discussions about it and how they so beautifully gave, you know, Christina a year long send off because also very difficult and rare in television that you already know that, you know, with that much time ahead and that you time to plan a storyline and which they did. And they wrote it very, very beautifully. It was a it was a, a, a great year of work. You know what I mean? When you when you're car- you know, because it's like out of 10 seasons, it's like not every season is going to be your season. You know, not every episode is going to be your episode. You know what I mean? It's like, OK, if I have like two episodes a season out of 22, it leaves enough episodes for everyone else. So I I'd, I'd say, you know, so grateful to them that I knew it was that time to go.
0: Well, the reason I asked about the expectations game is just that I had seen one thing that you had told Vanity Fair where you were saying that. I think coming off of, coming off of Grey's Anatomy, you would have understandably had the the kind of feeling like there's going to be a bombardment of quality opportunities coming my way, and the word you used was heartbreaking that there were not more. Correct? Is that a? No, it's absolutely yeah? truthful.
2: I would say the time that it had shifted in a way of. This the kind of nervousness that an actor always has of like, I'm never going to work again, (laughs) you know, or (laughs) or or trying to figure out where you are in the hierarchy of opportunity. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like if you base yourself on anyone else, basically a white person who is coming off of a show and is going to this and going to that, you're going to see that you're going to expect that it's going to platform into something else. Um, And that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case for years, and I would say that has only changed for me in the past
0: year so what was there at that moment? What were your options that you were looking at pre I was I was definitely
2: along? making my options, meaning I went back to the theater, you know what uh-huh. I mean where I have a lot of relationships, and it was just like okay <laughs> okay, I'm free and so um. Victory Gardens. So Che Yu was the first one who nabbed me. And he goes, and he also he also had been courting me for years. Whenever you're done, whenever you're done the show, come to my theater, the Victory Gardens Theater in Chicago and come do the play. And we did, I did. I, and I went and I did Death in the Maiden, which was like really a tough choice. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you're not phoning it in on that no. one.
2: No. <laughs> um so but it was also I felt like I had a tremendous amount of freedom not only economically which uh, again I'm so grateful to uh grace to have given me but I I really 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 wanted to grow as an artist and and that's the that's that's about getting back to that girl who lay on the, lay on the floor and made her own rules. So that was the beginning, I think, of that journey for me to say, Oh, I want to do a play. Oh, this feels right. I am not going to wait. You know, I'm not gonna no, no, that's not true. I'm not going to depend on on some idea or someone else giving this. I'm gonna work with people who want to work with mm-hmm. me for God's sakes. Right. You know, right, right. and if it's not, you know, the top ten white male directors who I've never worked with, I'm never gonna work with. It, it, who cares? about them. You know what I mean? It's like, I want to work with people because it is. So if it's a play, if it's a short film, it's, if it's like, you know, a a workshop. And that's interesting to me because the material is, that's what I was able to spend the time working on.
0: Well, and your, your gut was obviously correct because at a certain point you hear from somebody named Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And I'm wondering, did you know who she was and what was she, what was, what was presented to you as what, she wanted you to look at in terms of a pilot. Was it like how you you receive, what, a, a script or, a, or yeah. just an idea? Yeah,
2: no, I said, I think that it was a very, very, very kind of basic kind of way. Fleabag either had just come out or was starting to come out, because I remember it was the spring of oh, 17, 17, I think, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I I wasn't familiar with Phoebe's work yet, right? But during that time, where it was like I got this script, it was it was a very kind of common thing. It's like, okay, here's the script, read it. If you like it, then have a meeting. And so I read it, and then either I had just watched, like I got a link and I watched her flea bag somewhere along the line. It was very very close. Either I read it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And but I, immediately when I read like the first two pages, like you know the first couple of scenes, I I just. I just knew this writer's voice. I just knew her voice and I knew where she wanted to go. And I knew, and I knew I could do it. You know what I mean? Cause I, and I, and I knew it was a special voice. Um,
0: now this may be fable or I don't know, some, but I read that you get, you're reading the pilot and saying, you know, who is she asking me to play? Mm-hmm. Because oh, that's not of fable. maybe what we've, that's what, exact- it's not, but because of what we've been talking about, right? Like it couldn't be. The assumption is that, oh, it can't be Eve, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, those are, the, those, are those very rude awakening moments that I that in some ways you hope you all, everyone has, like example, what I'm hoping that we're all having now with Black Lives Matter to look at our mental conditioning, you know and how deep it has gone. And so in that moment, and I wasn't even reading the pilot then, I had opened my phone and I was scrolling. I was just scrolling. I was scrolling. I was like, I don't get it. Who is that? Who is that? Who am I? Who am I playing? I don't get it. And then when it was Eve, it was just like, you, you know, you spend your entire career trying to not only see yourself, but, you know, so your community can be seen. And in the moment where, where the world is asking you to see yourself, you can't. Uh, it was, it was, um, you know, I still deal with that.
0: And we should just note for people listening, as I understand it in the source material, there's no specification that Eve is of Asian descent. There's none of no, right? no, 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 uh, no. Now, one thing I also wondered though was it specified that she was American or could she have been? Yes, British.
2: Yeah, no. I think that was also in the way that the deal happened. They wanted to have, and I think this is like actually so excellent. The hybrid. Of a British show with an with an American feel to it. And, and really the only American feel to it was me, you know, because yeah. Killing Eve is a British show. But when you put a, an American or another cultural element to it, it just tweaked what we know a British show to be. And I just think quite a great way. Um, Andy and is it was an a outsider. Yes. She's
0: not. Right. I mean, and we should just I guess I should take this moment to very briefly remind people this is a married American living in London who starts out as a frustrated, death bound person at MI5, but becomes a foreign intelligence specialist at MI6 and winds up in this amazing what has often been described as cat and mouse situation with a villain uh, uh, known as Villanelle, appropriately. So and to that point, were so you were on board? I think first was there was it you sitting there reading with a variety of different people before they arrive at Jody Comer or how did how did they know that you two are going to be uh, good good with each other?
2: You know there was a screen test with uh, a couple of actresses and Jody was one of them, and uh, they came to Los Angeles. Jody came. I just I remember it so clearly, and we were just in like some crappy office in the valley. <laughs> and, you know, we had all these like uh, like a computer, a phone, another camera recording her while they were z- z- not even Zoom at that point when they were just <laughs> like FaceTiming and Skyping in. And uh, we did that uh, audition. And, um, you know, it was Jody.
0: Now, it, if you were given truth, sir, I mean, I know that you guys are are now very big fans of each other. But at that moment would you have said based on the people that you read with was it clear that she was the one who should be cast or was there were there were there arguments for others as well
2: you know there are a lot of talented actresses absolutely Jody is exceptionally talented and what she had so strongly um, at such a young age uh, that she carries is a certain type of gravitas, actually, a certain type of natural, it's not, it's not darkness, but I would, I would probably say gravitas. And it was so funny what, what at that point, you know, Phoebe and, and Colin, the producer did, and, and, and and Sally didn't quite know was if Jodie had the right kind of spice or quirkiness or or, or weirdness of uh, a Villanelle. And of course we know that she does and what she created was so odd and delicious. So, but it it is that, and you know, she's a a great dance partner.
0: Just to read back to you, show goes on the air April 8th, 2018 and Buzzfeed just as one, I thought they put it great. So here's quote, there's something expressly poignant about seeing O, with her business casual garb and her hair in a bun at the center of killing Eve. Eve is funny and dorky, eager and intense, possessed of so many of the qualities that made O shine in those supporting roles, not discarded now that she's been bumped up to lead, but burnished. A refreshingly unromanticized character dropped into a lurid conspiracy, not as a joke, but as the point. It's not even that Eve is a rich role, though she is. It's the expanding of imagination that she represents, the promise that writers and directors and showrunners can see a place for an actor like, oh, not just on the sidelines, but at the heart of the story, close quote. I thought they, they wow. couldn't put it a lot better than that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's but it's there's a real truth to that, right? The the root of the point, I think, is that the things that made you great when you were only given the opportunity to pop in and out of things in years past it's not like those are gone. That is at the core, the eccentricities of this character who's now been so embraced. There's something nice about it. you didn't have to change to it's people people changed, people came around to you. Finally. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, there's something I think that that writer said I, I, If I'm picking up on it, it's expanding imagination. I think that they might have said something. I think that is quite wonderful because that's what it is. It's like you don't know what you actually have been missing until you actually get to see it. And when you see Mm -hmm. it, you actually love it because you've just been fed the same thing, the same story. We can even talk about where we are you know uh, you know the same uh, belief systems over and over again and that there is an alternative. there is another way. Mm-hmm. And what that does when you see that are the way it, it expands you.
0: And I think one of the great things about Phoebe's work in a number of things, but certainly in this is the you in in one moment could be doing could be asked to do and you and you pull it off in a way that I don't know many others could, but just go from, the darkest of stuff to the to the lightest. Of, I mean, you mentioned about the scene in season one where there's a crack in the bus stop partition, and she shatters it. And this is right before meeting uh, Villanelle, I think, for the first time, or seeing Villanelle. You know, and just that there's a lot of subtext. There's a lot of jumping from drama to comedy that keeps it feeling just different than anything else that I can think of on TV, right?
2: I, I, you know, I'd say one of my proudest acting moments, <laughs> and I can't really point to that many, but there is, there is this scene in season one uh, between Villanelle and Eve at the in the kitchen where they meet for the first time and they speak. And basically Villanelle has Eve up against the fridge and she's trying to open her phone, right? Eve is terrified and she's saying basically, what's your code? And I remember when Phoebe came up with that. Oh, I just—I remember it was so delicious. And <laughs> and and what I was—I was so happy to be able to get to. But it's you know the entire sh- you know, it, it was built for this, was that Eve is terrified and frightened. She's crying, and she's giving her code, which is one two three four. <laughs> right and so that is kind of the the line the tone and the line that i knew that that's what phoebe was wanting and that i knew that i could deliver which is how can you have the height of fear where everything is is that is on the face of the of the character is fear and then you have the most ridiculous
0: comedic <laughs> line
2: which is also true cuz how many people have that as their code
0: absolutely <laughs> And and it sounds like so you're also, I believe, a co EP on the show and and that's not just like a token thing. Like there I read that the way very memorable way, and I'm not gonna get specific because I don't want to spoil for people who still need to catch up, but the very memorable way season one ends for for instance, where there's kind of a the tides have sort of turned in a way. That's that emanated from the mind of Sandra, oh, I believe. Right? Oh no,
2: it, it was it was definitely a collaborative thing, and I, I think for me, I feel like that's where I work the best with all our showrunners, and and you know, as uh, as an actor who's able to grow in this way, the need or the desire to be uh, to take on that EP role for me has always been a creative one. I always want to have. A creative collaboration with a writer uh, within television, actually in 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 any kind of medium. So, that's where I've been lucky
0: to have that. And as as this shows progress through the next two seasons, has there what's been the most challenging, gratifying parts for you? I mean, it's it's got to feel very different for you from somebody who was doing twenty something episodes a year, a season to now you have I think eight, and yet. You make every you guys make every minute count. What's what's for you been the kind of the the most challenging part of what you have to do on that show at, beyond season one now as we get bring it up to the present?
2: I will start with the the most gratifying is that people respond to it and the way that people yeah. respond to it in the ways that you could never predict. And that really, really buoys me. I think it buoys everyone the the most challenging thing is is our show is tough to shoot our t- our mm-hmm. show is tough to shoot and there has oh, there has been a <laughs> you know there's our show explores kind of chaos the chaos between villanelle and eve i i have found shooting this show extremely creatively challenging for me in the best of ways and in ways that have challenged me the most. In the darkest places that I've had to go, it hasn't yeah. been it hasn't been easy. So what but, but the fact that people enjoy it, that's different than my job, which is like, you know what I mean, <laughs> however I get to that place is however I get to it and has been challenging. And I think that just the actual nature of our show in also every show has its own quirks and stuff, you know what I mean? Its own family, its own template. Um, Ours is not immune to just how difficult it can be to shoot a TV show in an international one.
0: I think last question, just as a big picture one, at this moment, here we are 2020, obviously the real world stuff aside, you've gotten to a place here where you're part of a show that everybody's watching and talking about who is in this business that you've been a part of for 25 years now in terms of screen acting. You've- I think in the last few years, doing this, got in the uh, you were getting Emmy nominations and and respect and stuff for Grey's Anatomy and other things before, but I think this is a different level. So I just wonder personally how you feel about where things are, but also since we've talked so much about being an Asian, a person of Asian descent in this business, you know, we're two years removed now from Crazy Rich Asians, which a lot of people found very moving and and cause for hope you had 25 years earlier talked about seeing the joy luck club and coming out of that feeling the same things but there were 25 years in between those things so you know the skeptic would say are we going to have to wait another at this point now 23 years before we see the next step from crazy rich Asians or are are you more optimistic that this time there is real progress not just for Sandra, oh, but for Asians generally in this business. So it's not just a small question about the big yeah. picture for you. <laughs> nice to end it,
2: Scott, on a really tiny question. Um, okay, I'll answer it in two parts. The first one being, you know, having been in in this industry for that amount of time, as I've said, that you learn that setting expectations or having expectations is, is not helpful. I feel like even, even the question itself, I'm not interested in framing it that way. You know, I understand why people go, hey, you know, draw that club 25 years later, you know, a Crazy Rich Asians, are we going to have to wait? Because that framework is still, and that mentality is still having to depend on white Hollywood. So I'm going to pivot to the second part of that, my answer, which is, I am now working with still, by the way, primarily young female Asian filmmakers. And they are now coming to me with their projects. And that's all. That's really who I want to work with because I want to tell their stories. And so I feel I do have... A slate of, oh, my God, COVID, oh, my God, 2020 was going to be just a,
1: (laughs) dang, oh, you know, I I just want
2: everything to just please, please pick up and still go. Um, So, so, so so with, with, again, when I was saying I have felt a change in the year, in the past year, that is true, because I can feel like people are ready to say yes to that young female Asian filmmaker, I'm just thinking of it because I was just off a Zoom call with one of them and, um, and saying, okay, we want, we want to tell your story. And so, so the idea of like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of three of them, the idea that they would be able to have that they're helming the script that they wrote, they are asking me to do it. There is a budget and it's actually going to be done. (laughs) That is a tremendous amount of success. I, I, that is that is something that is a, is a change for me because that is I've never I've I'm so happy to feel it now and I hope it continues, and and it's the to continue the development and the support of diverse voices. But going back to that first point is is like my thinking has shifted. I'm not I don't want to. Why do I want to work with people who don't want to work work with me? I don't care. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I want to work with people (laughs) who, who, and I'm also interested in certain type of stories that are just closer to me. And I feel for the first time that I'm really going to be able to be a part of that storytelling. So a shift in, and I also hope that shift for all of us to even start opening up, how we frame these questions or how we frame development or how actually how we frame change, because this is definitely one thing that I've said for a long time is that it is slow. It is slow. And so, and it has to, if it's really going to be real, it, you know, it's about changing your own thinking about not caring about one thing that you've c- cared about for whatever your whole life, and then focusing on something new.
0: That's true. Well, well, you're terrific. I thank you so much for doing thank this. You. And uh, I really uh, look forward to seeing what you do when we're all freaking liberated from, <laughs> from this insanity. So, Same. Uh, but yeah, in the meantime, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash feinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardino's behind the screen and Josh Wiggler's series regular on behalf of all of us at the Hollywood reporter. Thanks for tuning in.
3: Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can, I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere,